Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Arden Roll, a professor at the University of Illinois College of Law. We'll be discussing her new book with co-author Kenworthy Bills. Uh, the name of the book is The Psychology of Law. It was re- recently published by NYU Press. Arden, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Always fun to chat. So as you know in the book, uh, environmental law, which obviously we're both environmental law professors, it's a very interdisciplinary field, right? There's, you know, like obviously ecology and the natural sciences, you have economics and other social sciences, you have you know, philosophy and humanistic disciplines that all kind of intersect with environmental law in lots of different ways. But as you make a compelling case in the book, psychology hasn't had as much of an impact on environmental law, even though maybe it should have. So what do you think the reason for that is? Why has psychology lagged these other disciplines in terms of making an imprint on how we how we think about environmental law and policy? Yeah, that's such a great question, Mike. Um, I think that the heart of the matter really is that you know, the environment is what surrounds us. It's what's outside of us. It's external to us. And psychology is truly the study of what is most internal, what is happening inside of our minds, uh, inside of our hearts. And so I think there's just something very counterintuitive about putting the two together. Um, I think, for me at least, that's the explanation for the heart of why there's been less attention, uh, less attention to psychology and environmental law than uh, than with these other sciences and social sciences uh, that you just mentioned. I think an additional kind of explanation, though, might look to the fact that psychology has traditionally been very, what I would call, non-normative. That is, it's a really very descriptive social science that's trying to understand how and why people think and feel uh, and to some extent act as they do. And it's really not interested in uh, in, in trying to promote or even really um, uh, invest in any particular view of how people should be behaving. And that, I think, is, is different than at least some portions of other social sciences, like, for example, economics, uh, where there's long been a, a much richer tradition of engaging with, um, uh, with, with with normative aims like efficiency and social welfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, um, it's, it's and I think that that's that, that's something to explore a little bit is the is that idea of psychology as a non as a non normative discipline. Um, that's worth definitely getting into if we if we have time. But maybe again, just to kind of ease our way in uh, to the conversation, uh, there is um, you know there are areas of law, or there at least in the conversation about law generally, psychology has been playing a, a greater role in recent years. And I think it's probably fair to argue that the role of psychology in thinking about law has perhaps lagged other. Um, other disciplines like economics. There's a huge law and economics movement that dates back, you know, almost, I mean, maybe more than 50 years at this point. Um, Whereas behavioral economics, law and psychology is a newer, uh, is a a newer area. Um, Now, is there anything, so, so for your book and for your project about the psychology of environmental law, are you kind of applying the, the general insights of psychology 
to law the way that we see in other fields like consumer finance or something like that? There could be a psychology of consumer finance law. Uh, or is there something kind of special or some features of environmental law that are special that make the application of, of the field of psychology and insights from psychology particularly important? Yeah, great. So, uh, so certainly you can use general tools of law and psychology um, in any field, and and uh, they're useful for helping to inform and understand and predict human behavior across uh, different realms that the law uh, and, and behaviors that the law tries to regulate. Uh, but yeah, the 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 thrust of the book is really to make an argument that there is also something special psychologically about environmental law and policy um, that makes environmental law and policy particularly particularly need uh, psychological tools and psychological research um, so that we can best understand how environmental law works and how it can work better. And what is that? What is it that makes, uh, in, in my view, uh, environmental law and policy psychologically distinctive is that environmental law is fundamentally concerned with environmental injury and that environmental injury has a, a kind of uh, a recipe or a cocktail of characteristics that make it unusually difficult for people to perceive, to process, and attach value to. And uh, because of that, that creates a series of challenges in regulating environmental injuries that don't necessarily come up uh, in, in other contexts. So, like, what are some of the, what, what are, so, you know, uh, Negroni is one part gin, one part uh, Campari, and one part uh, 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 sweet vermouth. What are the parts <laughs> of, uh, what, what is the, how do you make an environmental law and psychology cocktail in such a way that it creates these problems? Yeah, so, so the, the three distinctive parts uh, that I see to environmental injury are that environmental injuries tend to be diffuse, that is spread through space and time. And that creates in particular a bunch of, of challenges in people perceiving them. Uh, so they're diffuse. They're complex in that they often implicate multiple causes, uh, non-linearities, um, interactions, uh, etc. Uh, and because they're complex, uh, that makes them even more difficult for individuals to process and understand. And then the third, uh, the third ingredient is that environmental injuries are distinctively um, and and frequently non-human in character. That is, they affect non-humans. They work through non-human processes, um, and uh, because of that, they are psychologically. Dis difficult for people to attach emotion and value to. You know, the social brain that, uh, that humans have developed um, over so many years uh, suits us really well for understanding social problems with other humans, or at least for having tools for processing those problems. But when it comes to trying to think about non-human processes and non-human stakeholders, it, it, it just a, it ends up being a misfit. It ends up firing in cases where it doesn't actually make sense to do so, uh, and it ends up uh, not noticing things that are potentially important when they don't fit into our kind of social, um, uh, the social structure of our brain. So, uh, so environmental injuries uh, are distinctively uh, uh, diffuse, complex, and non-human in character, and all of those create additional challenges for individuals in, in perceiving, understanding, and, and then attaching value to them. 
Right. Okay. So we so we've got our ingredients, and they and they do make uh, a, a difficult a difficult cocktail um, to to address through law, or to uh, or or it can make it difficult even to build political constituencies to get legal change and all that kind of thing. So maybe just to get into these in a little bit more detail, um, maybe we could take the the non-human one first. Um, and I think part of okay, so. So one of the things that I'm trying to disaggregate a little bit is, um, and of course I'm bringing a particular kind of law and econ mindset to this, um, which is <laughs> which may or may not be useful, but to think of the to disaggregate between kind of people making mistakes um, that are due to psychology or the interaction of human psychology and certain features of a policy problem versus kind of preferences, right? So a, a few times in the book you note. Um, that, you know, people tend to have more empathy towards like cute and cuddly creatures <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that look a little bit like human babies. Um, and therefore, you know, that might explain, you know, how in practice the Endangered Species Act works. Like in theory, the act doesn't say it's not the cute, cuddly animal protection act, right? It's just the Endangered Species Act. Um, but in reality, we do see uh, there tends to be an emphasis on protecting megafauna, um, you know, kind of the, the cute and cuddly. I'm not that grizzly bears are cute and cuddly, but, you know, like in a picture, I guess they're kind of cute. Um, <laughs> uh, or little grizzly bears are cute. So, baby ones. Baby, baby ones. But, um, okay, so, so, so on the one hand, you know, like an economist might just say, an economically oriented person might just say, look, that's just what people care about. They care about cute and cuddly. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not kind of a psychological failure. That's just a, a reality of how people relate to the world. Um, I, I mean, is that is that is that an okay view, or is there another way of looking at the problem? <laughs> well, is it okay? I mean, uh, I, I think that it goes to the heart of a, of an economic uh, mindset and the way that uh, economics and law economics. Uh, law and economics has uh, traditionally approached behavior, uh, which is to to sort of start with preferences and move on from there, and, and to just take preferences as as given. And, and not everybody in law and economics always does that, but you know, that's just sort of the the starting point. And it makes sense because economics is um, is largely built on observational studies, uh, for example, which aren't necessarily going to get uh, very effectively into questions of motivation or why it is that people have the preferences that they do, and uh, uh, and because what economics is often largely interested in is figuring out what the impacts of those preferences are going to be and how to implement them, uh, not so much whether or not they're good preferences. Um, and so you know, is it good? Is it bad to think that way? It's, it's worth noting that you're thinking that way, as you are, in fact, noting. Um, what I think psychology offers that's a little bit different is some tools for sort of stepping back before the time of preference formation and asking why it is that people hold the preferences uh, that they do. So as you said, in the Endangered Species Act uh, context, uh, basically the way that species end up being protected is that someone, uh, whether it's an agency uh, or an individual, ends up initiating a petition process and that means they have to, you know, pay attention enough uh, to the species to know that it's potentially endangered uh, uh, to uh, to be able to even trigger that process. And then they have to actually care enough about the species to go through the process of uh, of gathering up the information, um, etc., uh, to potentially get it uh, protected. And so, what is it that leads people to uh, to notice or to care? 
about particular species, animal or plants, is going to affect which ones end up getting uh, getting protected. And it might be, um, and, and I think in fact it, it is the case that that sometimes people aren't aware of what it is that makes them notice things or care about things. Uh, and it might be that um, that their preferences for uh, for cuddly animals that look like human babies, um, it's not a preference that's particularly deep or that they care that much about. It's just something that they have without thinking about it and that they just sort of go around the world um, uh, uh, expressing, again, not necessarily in a reflective way and not even necessarily in a way that uh, that, that truly reflects their deeper values or commitments. And um, so, for example, it may be that, uh, that many people, if you really had a kind of long conversation with them, uh, would uh, would be uh, would be perfectly willing to even change their minds about which species they cared about. If you emphasize the importance of, I don't know, low level um, uh, plants or animals on a food chain and how if we have an insect apocalypse that could end up uh, undermining you know, enormous portions of <laughs> the Earth's ecologies. Um, and, uh, and they may just really never think about that as even a, a possibility for reasons that are really opaque to them um, and which don't represent anything particularly important either their, to their welfare or anything else. But but if we never realize um, that the mechanisms that lead people to notice some animals and not others or to care about some animals or plants and not others, uh, if, we, if we never notice that there are mechanisms that are affecting those things, we can never even get to the point of asking, well, you know, are these good or bad? If we, have we ended up with a pattern of protection of endangered species that is appropriate or inappropriate? And I think a, a feature of the psychological approach is that what's an appropriate or inappropriate uh, pattern of protecting endangered species? We could try to answer in a bunch of different ways. Um, we could uh, try to answer it by looking at what's most um, uh, most efficient or what's best for social welfare, or we could try to answer it by reference to what's most just. And psychology would allow us to, to answer that question either of those ways, but unless we know that there's a pattern to look at and ask that question about, are we choosing the right animals and plants to protect, um, I will, we'll never even get to the point of, of doing that analysis. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I think, yeah, this, 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 it's, it's very interesting because, so just on the, in a way, on the non-normative point, do you think you would concede that the, the or what's your view on the question of the, whether, whether someone's reflective preferences are in some sense better than their, than their not, you know, non-reflective preferences? So people go around, they, they like the cute and cuddly species, and that's what they focus on. And then, and then you say, well, look, that might just be a, a, an artifact of your psychology, and you should really care about um, insects and uh, you know other you know uh, other types of critters just as much as you care about um, koala bears. And then someone updates their view and says, okay, now I care about you know cockroaches just as much as koala bears. Then um, is, is that second set of preferences like better or you know kind of? more robust or like have we have we benefited in that situation or is it just a matter of like well if you think that reflective preferences are better then then they're better but you don't necessarily have to think that yeah i mean i think my view on this is that people's uninterrogated environmental preferences are going to 
are going to be a product of this kind of bitter cocktail of mm -hmm. psychological impacts that mean that, you know, what we're getting with the, the animals and plants people choose to protect is decided by um, a, a whole bunch of factors, again, which they may be totally unaware of um, and, uh, and which are likely insensitive to the complexity of relationships between different species that um, likely are insensitive to you know, the diffuse impacts of uh, the thriving of various species, not just in the ecosystem they're in, but also interconnected with other ecosystems and which are triggered by these, you know, Probably, I mean, these potentially, um, a, a potentially irrelevant uh, a sort of human factors uh, that make us, you know, see faces not just in animals but also in inanimate objects. Um, and uh, and so, of, like a piece of toast. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and we do the same thing with you know polar bears. We we right. we anthropomorphize them. We we imagine that they have human expressions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, and. You know, is that if you point that out to people, are they necessarily going to develop um, sort of better preferences in some way? I'm not sure. You know, I think it depends on what our policy goals are. I mean, I guess one way of thinking about this when it comes to the Endangered Species Act is there's really nothing in the act that suggests that Congress meant the act to be a you know, cute, cuddly, safe, uh, uh, a cute, cuddly. Um, uh, oh, I bet uh, if you look at scary. the legislative history, though, they talk a lot about about cute and cuddly. And less, do, about, they, and less about the, they, uh, the the nasties out there. The, because they're like subject to the, to, the, to the same kinds of, uh, right. of impacts as just anybody else, any other right. human. Uh, and but, but the actual statute itself, it doesn't try to distinguish between sort of where it is that plants or animals fall on a food chain or... Um, or, you know, it doesn't create a mammal protection um, uh, provision uh, that only applies for mammals, even though it gets used uh, so frequently for mammals. Um, you know, plants are included uh, as well. And, uh, and so the way that the statute itself is written works for even scary, ugly, um, tiny animals that are non-mammals. Uh, it's just not getting invoked and used in that way. And so I think that there's, you know, there's a potential basically for a misfit between um, between statutory purpose and the actual impact of a statute when we get these uh, these psychological factors coming into play, particularly if um, uh, if policymakers are not. Uh, themselves <laughs> understanding the kinds of uh, the kinds of psychological factors that can go into to, to people um, invoking the law in in sort of skewed or um, uh, or psychologically impacted ways. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I think I'm of kind of two minds about this as we're talking about it. On the one hand, I, I think I'm probably happy to just say, you know, free your mind, man. Like your preferences are better once you're alerted to ways that you could be led astray. And, you know, they're more likely to line up with your underlying commitments. They're more likely to be morally sound. They're more likely to improve your own well-being. And that, you know, that 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 I, I think I'd be pretty comfortable with with making a claim like that. Um, on the other hand, I, I, you know, I think that one could take a psychological perspective and say, 
you know, if what we're really trying to get at is what were the purposes of the Endangered Species Act, then what we know about human psychology is that they probably were thinking about megafauna when they were, you know, even if they didn't, you know, put that down. And then we'd have to, like, have a conversation about how best to interpret a text, you know. Um, yes, they didn't put the words in there in exactly that way, but maybe they were thinking along those lines. Um so, you know, I, I, so, I, so I think that's kind of an interesting thought. In some sense, if you're thoroughly non-normative, uh, you know, thoroughly going in a non-normative perspective, it's just like, these are the facts. Like, people care more about cuddly than they do about maybe, you know, um, uh, I don't know, than they quote unquote should, uh, whatever that means, I guess. Um, or we could take a view and say, actually, people should be pretty agnostic. Cute and cuddly shouldn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't really matter, and that people are making a kind of mistake. Um, it sounds like you're in a, a, a bit of a middle ground on that question. Yeah, I mean, one thing you said there, I think, uh, uh, really uh, triggers just such an interesting question, which is, you know, should we read psychological bias into right. statutory purpose? <laughs> uh, uh, and I, that's a bigger, a bigger question, uh, a hard question. I, I sure feel uncomfortable with that. Um, and that doesn't mean that, it, that we couldn't mount an argument for it. Uh, but um, whew, that's a tough one. And I'm certainly not here to advocate uh, for and uh, for for reading statutes uh, in light of the likely psychological bias of the policymakers huh. who were drafting them, that is kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, thought. yeah, um, uh, yeah. I, I mean, one thing I struggled with throughout this book, um, and which I also struggle with in talking about it, is I think that uh, that if, again, a feature of a psychological approach to environmental law and policy is that it can fit with so many different normative um, views. Mm-hmm. So you can take a justice-based approach, a rights-based approach, an efficiency-based approach. That doesn't mean that I myself have no normative right. views, right? And so um, and so I, I really tried throughout, and, and I was helped by the fact that my, my co-author, uh, Kenworthy Bills, um, uh, has a different you know set of normative preferences uh, than I do. Um, I tried throughout the book uh, to really not confuse the my own normative leanings um, with what it is you can use psychology to do. Um, uh, but um, but yeah, so you know, even in the question you just asked, I mean, uh, you know, I don't. I think you can take a psychological approach to the question um, that's descriptive and helpful, um, regardless. And then um, and then I, I guess I could clarify my own position on it, which is, I think that um, that people's uh, unexplored preferences about the environment are often misguided, and that even it, it's actually difficult. Although you can change those preferences by talking with them sometimes, it can also be quite difficult to change those preferences mm-hmm. because of all the psychological challenges that come along. And so I tend to, to, to think that we should be um, more skeptical of using uh, preferences as a, a, an indicator or um, a vector um, or a, a driver of policy in the environmental realm um, than in, in other realms where we regulate um, even human health and well-being. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, that's that's where I end up uh, coming down. Um, now that still ends up, you know, that opens up a whole host of additional right, puzzles right, right. Uh, that, in some ways, are, are tangential to this particular project. Um, but that is where sort of where I've ended up after this project mm-hmm. in seeing just how tricky it is uh, for people to uh, to see and understand and and attach a meaning to uh, environmental impacts. Yeah. It's really interesting. And, I, and maybe towards the end, 
um, we could return back to this question of kind of um, almost more generally law and psychology in a democracy and how to, you know, how do we think about the relationship of democratic legitimacy when we know that people's, um, you know, instincts or preferences or perceptions can, can lead us astray. And, and that just raises a host of interesting and difficult um, questions. But just to dig into the actual environmental um, uh, context and, and the intersection of psychology and, and the environment a little bit more, I mean, uh, one of the, um, I mean, there's, there's lots of different things. Uh, I mean, the book is really rich. I, I of course, encourage uh, folks to read it. Uh, there are many, many different interesting examples and, and, and incredibly um, uh, useful just summary of existing literature that's relevant. So that's incredibly helpful. But a few that popped out to me that I, I particularly find interesting is like the one was the, the distinction between natural and non-natural. And, you know, this kind of plays out in lots of different ways, like how we define pollution versus non-pollution, that kind of thing. Um, and, the, and the psychology of that. And, um, you know, and then, of course, that has a lot of uh, importance for, for environmental law in, in lots of different contexts. So, so what, it, what, what's going on there? What is the psychology of that? And how is it relevant? Yeah, great. So, um, so one of the things that um, that I think is particularly interesting about how people engage with pollution, in particular, um, is is this emotional content um, that that people end up attaching to things that they think of as sort of polluting or clean or um, uh, or. Um, uh, you know, with sacred or profane, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's been work, of course, in other social sciences and in anthropology, um, in particular on uh, cultural evaluations of risk, which finds that people in different societies and different cultures end up thinking of different things as. Uh, kind of safe or risky, uh, dirty or clean. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to sort of modern Americans, um, one of the one of the uh, the ways that modern Americans tend to think about what is clean and what is dirty or what is dangerous and what is safe is that um, uh, that we tend to, as you as you already pointed out, uh, to think of things that are natural as if they're safer than things mm-hmm. that are man-made or artificial. And you know, this is not inevitable. We, we didn't have to, uh, to develop that view. Um, and of course, many, many risks, many forms of pollution uh, can be either naturally occurring or, uh, or artificially produced. I mean, you can have naturally uh, occurring arsenic uh, in the soil, or you can have a complicated industrial process that, uh, that ends up uh, creating arsenic waste. And the arsenic itself is um, is equally dangerous either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, uh, this is just it's, it's sort of cultural uh, a phenomenon that informs people's perceptions, the psychology of uh, what they see as risky and what they see as safe. And so um, one <laughs> One example I give in the book um, is, you know, we all uh, we all know that um, all right, we all know this, but people who do environmental law and policy know that uh, particulate matter, uh, air pollution, is mm. particularly dangerous, particularly deadly, um, and uh, and uh, you know it kills um, so many people every year, it makes so many people sick. It also actually ex- exacerbates. We now know risks from uh, from COVID and other types of illness, etc. Um, uh, it's dangerous, uh, and um, uh, and yet, you know, if you think about um, 
what what people think of as a kind of natural uh, a source of <laughs> particulate matter, uh, wood smoke, uh, mm-hmm. you can see that um, that people often associate kind of cozy warm, safe mm-hmm. feelings with the scent of wood smoke. That is with the scent of particulate matter. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, and it even goes so far as to, uh, to mean that we have wood smoke as a popular candle um, mm-hmm. uh, scent. Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, why is that? Uh, well, you know, if we called it particulate matter scent, I don't think <laughs> it would sell as well. Uh, yeah. Industrial uh, industrial pollution scent. Um, people don't want that. They want the scent of, of wood smoke, even when um, uh, when in reality what they're smelling is much the same. And so, um, so what is it that's leading to um, to people's perception of you know a particular thing as as polluting or as dangerous, and what leads them to be tolerant of that? Or to think that um, that that they're safe enough. Um, yeah, there's a there's there's a number of different psychological factors that come into play, and of course that can end up interacting also with other um, social and uh, cultural factors as well. Hmm. Yeah, no, there's uh, some great examples in the in the book on this. I think uh, if I'm recalling this correctly, so th- there's the story of the Portland Reservoir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so how does that go? <laughs> Oh my goodness! I think it was in 2014. Uh, there was an incident caught on camera uh, for this reservoir in Portland, an open-air reservoir uh, at Mount Tabor uh, Park, and uh, they had some security cameras ringing this uh, reservoir, and they caught uh, this uh, teenager uh, peeing into the reservoir on tape. And this got picked up by by news outlets, and it just caused a, a furor. Uh, people were so upset, they were so disgusted, uh, and they they just why because they they didn't want to drink water that came from a reservoir that some um, I think that as the um, uh, as the the water official said later that some Yahoo had peed in (laughs) Uh, and so this became such a big deal that the uh, the water board ended up deciding that it would um, it would just dump 140 million liters of water uh, at the cost of tens of thousands of dollars um, uh, out of the reservoir and then just sort of refill and start over again uh, with treatment. <laughs> Which is crazy because, of course, in the in the natural course of events, what happens all the time? Well, there's, 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 there's animals who are peeing in the, that reservoir every day. Right. Uh, and not just peeing in the reservoir, which, you know, dying animal urine reservoir. is probably pretty sterile, like human urine. Right. Um, but, uh, but dying in the reservoir, they, they right. have to, they, they have to, to, uh, fish, uh, animal corpses out of the open <laughs> reservoir right. frequently. And they just look at that as the business of an open reservoir. Um, uh, but, uh, but when it comes to a human, uh, uh peeing into it and, and peeing into it, you can only imagine with a kind of malicious, uh, uh, some sort of malicious intent. And that creates pollution that people are upset about. So upset they end up draining just millions right. of liters of water. Um, uh, even as, um, 
um, pollution that is either essentially equivalent, like animal pee, um, or presumably uh, much worse biologically in the form of these animal corpses. Those are just tolerated and nobody even thinks about them. It's just, we have, of course, we have an open reservoir um, and, uh, and you know, they're not going to drain it every time that a, a fish dies in it. Right. Um, so, uh, so this, I think, is, uh, you know, it, it tells us something important about how it is that people perceive pollution and the kinds of, uh, of, 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 of triggers that lead them um, either to tolerate it or not. Um, and those triggers are, they're psychological triggers, uh, right? It doesn't make sense. It, it's hard to tell a sensible story. Um, well, maybe it's hard to tell a sensible story about this, uh, this incident at all, but it's really hard to tell a, a story that makes sense about it unless we realize that there's psychologically something different for people in in human uh peeing in this reservoir uh, and uh and animals doing so yeah no it's it's a it's a really it's a hilarious story and yeah just it highlights now again does it highlight irrationality you know maybe that's a that's a, a different kind of question right was it a bad idea to drain the reservoir nah, maybe not maybe it was a good idea if people really didn't want to drink their water and that's how they want to spend their money um but it um but the psychology highlights um, and, and perhaps illuminates kind of what's going on there. Um, a related example that that you mentioned is has even more serious consequences is kind of the treatment of particulate matter pollution in the context of the national ambient air quality standards uh, with respect to wildfire management. I actually didn't know this. This was this is a really interesting, um, and this this goes to I think both the natural non natural human human cause versus kind of in the course of events. And I think in the context of the book, you describe it in the, as like an action in action uh, distinction as well. So um, do you want to just explain, a, do you, assuming that I've done a good enough job of, of, of saying what I'm talking about here, um, do you want to just describe <laughs> yeah, yeah. the situation? Let me, let me say a little bit about it anyway. Um, so, um, so yeah, so one important source of particulate matter air pollution, particularly in uh, Western states and to some extent Florida, um, is uh, is fire and and wildfire um, in particular, uh, because basically when you burn up a bunch of vegetation, um, it sends a particulate matter into the air and it can it can create um, dangerous levels of uh, particulate matter. So basically, fire managers. Um, around the country and particularly where they, you know, there's a bunch of public lands uh, uh, to manage, typically have a, a, sore, a, a, a choice, a basic choice in managing, um, managing the lands under their control, either of doing kind of small prescribed uh, burns um, uh, 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 over time on purpose uh, and then having a little bit of uh, vegetation burnt up and a bit of uh, particulate matter pollution over time, or it's just sort of waiting around um, until there's a lightning strike or um, some fool throws a cigarette out of a, a window um, right. and, uh, or does and a, a or does a gender reveal party. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. Um, and triggers a wildfire and burns up all the vegetation that wasn't burnt up 
in um, in prescribed burns. And the way that these two different um, methods of management tend to get perceived is that um, that prescribed burns, that is people burning on purpose, is a kind of um, man-made uh, source of pollution, um, and that. Um, that wildfires are just sort of an accident that can happen. Um, and so historically, um, that view has been then embedded into the way that EPA has calculated um, uh, particulate matter levels in the states for purposes of figuring out whether or not states are in attainment with the requirements of the Clean Air Act or not. And historically, uh, they have, uh, EPA has actually basically preferenced <laughs> allowing wildfires, um, which create much larger quantities of, uh, of particulate matter released, you know, uh, uh, during the period of the fire. And which, of mm -hmm. course, as we've seen, sadly, tragically, recently also come with a, a series of other risks, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, has preferenced those by basically accepting uh, wildfires from um, uh, from uh, uh, from the calculation of whether or not a state is in compliance or not, um, and so that's that's a potential problem, uh, and it's one that might be at least partially informed um, uh, by sort of the way that these different things are being perceived as man-made or not man-made, um, and uh, and the kind of psychological impacts that come with that. Is yeah. that the part you were, you were meaning yeah, to Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking of. It's, <laughs> it's super and really impactful, right? Because it creates this situation where basically um, you're penalized under the air quality standards for engaging in controlled burns. Um, and you get and there's and you're not penalized or there's it's just treated as kind of outside of your control when you have a, 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 a you know, wildfire that that um, that releases the same pollutants, except all at once, um, which likely makes the situation uh, worse from a public health perspective. Yeah, um, exactly. And and to be clear, like it's the same vegetation in some sense that uh, burns, whether uh, whether it's a prescribed burn or whether uh, you know, mm -hmm. lightning starts the burn. Um, but because uh, wildfires tend to be triggered less frequently, you tend to have sort of more bracken and brush and mm -hmm. and small trees, etc., um, that burn. And so, yes, if anything, because um, because particulate matter seems to be a non-linear, um, have a non-linear dose response function, very high concentrations of it uh, seem to be more dangerous. And so if anything, you, you may be even uh, creating additional risk with these very high levels of release in a wildfire. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, while we're on the wildfires, I wonder um, what your thoughts are on, you know, this relates a little bit to, to this perception of natural versus non-natural. If you know, now that we know about climate change and kind of the Anthropocene more generally, um, especially in, in a place like California, where uh, folks are, are quite conscious of, of the reality of climate change and um, they know that wildfire risks are, you know, part of the package. If uh, just a bit of speculation, you, you think that, you know, as people start to attribute wildfires to human activity, i.e. climate change, that will lead them to perceive them as as worse and more dangerous uh, than they would otherwise. Yeah, that's a great um, that's a great question, Mike. Yeah, I do. Um, and uh, same thing with uh, with other um, uh, climate mediated events like hurricanes. Um, uh, as people start to perceive those as uh, anthropogenic, then they will are likely to also. 
and uh, increasingly perceive them as riskier. Um, this is a little bit off of the environmental topic, but I, you know, I was, I was interacting with someone recently who um, was basically uh, didn't believe in, in vac- the vaccination and, and was um, kind of strongly opposed uh, to any kind of mandate on vaccination. And my my instinct, or you know, what came out came out of that conversation was this person, you know, just believed in what we what they would call natural medicine. Um, you know, they didn't like the idea of putting artificial things in their body. So, um, do, is it is this kind of the same underlying mechanism at play in a, in a slightly different context? Yes, I, I really think that it is, and um, you know. It, Again, it's a it's socially constructed how we whether we decided uh, uh, whether people um, uh, uh, ended up believing that um, that uh, that man-made items are more safe or that natural so, so to speak natural that is non-human um, uh, products and uh, processes etc are more safe and even in the United States it hasn't always been the case that we've had this preference or that, that people have exhibited this preference uh, for the, the natural you know, at the beginning of the industrial revolution um, artificial products were seen as higher quality um, as if you know as if they were sanitary um, and and so it's a, a kind of modern phenomenon that we're seeing this shift towards a preference for what's perceived as um, as natural. Um, and I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the business of saying natural isn't better than uh, than man-made. I just don't think that the distinction um, makes sense in all circumstances. <laughs> and uh, you know, to me, the source of the effect is not what, for policy purposes, we should we should really care about most of the time. Except that we need to note that the individuals may care about it. Individuals, it may very much matter whether or not the source of a pollutant is what they perceive to be natural or what they perceive to be. Uh, to be man-made. Um, and we see this kind of what's called a source effect in other circumstances too, and in ways that can really matter um, to policy. So um, uh, so a source effect is just uh, the idea that um, the source of a, of a pollutant or the source of a risk is um, a, a determinant of how risky or dangerous um, it is. So another kind of source effect that comes up uh, frequently now, not just in environmental contexts, uh, but also uh, in regards to the pandemic, is that people tend to believe, to see, to perceive um, themselves and people that are close to them as not being as risky, uh, as as not presenting as many risks, as not being as disgusting, as not being as polluting um, as strangers and people that they don't know. And so there's a couple of pretty funny studies on this, actually, where they, for example, will spray people with a stinky spray and then ask them uh, how smelly uh, their friend is versus some stranger. And uh, and uh, and they'll say that their friend isn't as smelly. Uh, they think they, they themselves are not as smelly uh, either. Um, so anyway, so source effects like this mean that uh, people tend to, uh, to just not recognize um, risks, for example, of communicable disease um, as easily when they're emanating from someone that's close to them uh, as when they're coming from uh, from a stranger or someone that's unknown to them. Uh, and this sort of tolerance of familiar sources of risk, um, familiar sources of pollution, 
um, uh, is, you know, it's potentially dangerous. In an environmental context, uh, the book suggests that um, it may contribute to what uh, what we call a, a hometown pollution effect, mm-hmm. um, where um, you know people may people in general don't want to live and uh, and work and raise their families in places they think of as polluted, but they may really not think about um, the you know the familiar Frito Lay factory that's always been in their town and that you know mm-hmm. Uncle Stu works at. As a source of pollution, the fact that it's so familiar that they have these kinds of uh, connections to it, um, personal emotional connections to it, may end up having a source effect where the the actual factory itself seems unthreatening, and thus the pollution seems uh, seems either tolerable or as if it must not be that damaging. Mm. Um, and so this is source effects can be uh, can be dangerous um, when they lead people to uh, to struggle to perceive what can be very real risks. So 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 with this insight in hand, let's say this, I think is an interesting example um, that there is that there is this source effect or that there's a potential for these source effects. Um, you know, what do we do from a policy perspective with with that information? Do we uh, I mean, we could I, in, in, one possibility would be to say, well, you know, we're going to kind of ignore people's views on the dangers of, of local um threats because they're going to just, they're going to misperceive what's going on there. Um, you know, we could try to talk to them, you know, as, as you noted, people's views on such matters are often pretty um, stable and difficult to change just through chatting. So what, what do we do with this information now that we have it in hand? Yeah, so I think First, we can do a better job of predicting um, how it is that any policy instrument that we choose to exercise might actually work. Um, And especially if we've created a policy instrument that allows individuals to select when and how it operates, um, like as we talked about earlier with the Endangered Species Act, then we want to be really, really sensitive to these kinds of, you could call them distortions or impacts or phenomena and uh, et cetera. Um, because we're gonna, we're basically making the function of our environmental law and policies um, a, a contingent on shaped by a, a people's a psychological perceptions of their environment and environmental risk. And so that's not something that a policymaker is happy with um, if they don't want people to be uh, to be living in in you know more polluted places uh, happily. Uh, then um, then then you're going to need to come up with policy instruments that control the pollution um, without requiring individuals um, to to uh, to calibrate the, their level of exposure or to calibrate their level of tolerance. And so that that can be tricky. And you know. I can see a world um, where, uh, and this goes to uh, to kind of democratic theories that you uh, you referenced earlier in our conversation, Mike. I can see a world where, um, if you want to take one one form of a democratic approach to this, you would you would just be stuck. You'd have to say, um, look, people don't care about local polluters, um, hometown polluters, and so why would why do we need to do anything about? hometown polluters. People are fine with them. Um, implement their preferences as is. Um, uh, but you could also have a, a different uh, or a, a, a maybe even just a, a more nuanced democratic theory um, that would, would say, well, 
the reason they don't care is uh, because of these kinds of psychological challenges <laughs> and uh, that, that are, are leading them to basically misperceive or underperceive um, uh, the risks that they and their family are being exposed to. Um, let's not force them into that situation. Let's set up policy that's optimal or, or, or preferable based on whatever uh, whatever um, uh, whatever mechanism you prefer, and um, and just don't leave it to individuals to make these sorts of uh, make these sorts of trade offs. Yeah, it's a tough. It's a tough. It's a tough uh, question. I think um, one that we face a lot um, in many different contexts. Actually, that, that would be my view. Um, so another uh, kind of phenomenon that you describe in the environmental, you know, kind of psychological phenomenon that has consequences for, for environmental law that I, struck me as really interesting is um, the kind of in-group, out-group um, phenomenon that people tend to, tend to um, you know, understand themselves in, via kind of group membership. Uh, they express very different attitudes towards people who are who they perceive as outside their group than people who they perceive as inside their group. So, so what are some ways that 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 kind of psycho, psychological phenomenon affects in, in environmental law or policy or its implementation? Yeah. So, this can affect uh, environmental law and policy, and particularly, of course, um, environmental politics um, as well. Um, but basically. Um, what it boils down to is that um, so long, actually I'll back up a little bit here and say um, most people who are not sociopaths, uh, <laughs> most people are not sociopaths and most people who are not sociopaths uh, don't want to hurt other people and they don't want other people to be hurt. And, um, and they actually experience the thought of harming others as is painful or as upsetting. Um, and so this has a number of impacts on its own. The book talks about uh, this phenomenon, which psychologists have called moral disengagement that flows from this, where it can be very difficult to convince people that they have done something that hurts other people because it is so harmful to them to imagine that that's the case. And so that creates a number of challenges when you're thinking about, um, uh, for example, communicating with people about climate change impacts and their role in it, or even potentially communicating with people about their role in, um, in pollution, um, et cetera. Yeah, maybe so, just, to, just to pause for a second there. Okay. I mean, one mm -hmm. of the things I think is interesting here is it, I think, provides some really nice insight into why so much of the conversation about climate change has been about climate science which I think is a very, in, so an outside observer or an alien from another planet might find that to be very peculiar. Why are we fighting about climate science? Like the science has been settled for a very long time. Um, that really doesn't seem to be what's that, like obviously people's views about the science map onto, you know, these other features, like their, polit their political leanings, their geography, their, you know, what they do for a living. So, so why is it that we keep talking about climate science rather than about, you know, climate policy, like what is the economically best thing to do? What obligations do we have to future generations or to people in other countries, et cetera, et cetera, talking about the kind of underlying values. Instead, we keep sticking with talking about, you know, whether climate change is happening or not. And it seems like it might be related very closely to this issue of moral disengagement that you're describing. Yeah, I, I really think that's, I think that's right, Mike. And I think, um, so uh, psychologists have, 
chronicled basically a bunch of cognitive, you could say strategies, although many of them are unconscious, uh, cognitive um, uh, paths that people use to disengage uh, from the, the kind of recognizing the possibility that, uh, that they are causing harm. And they are um, uh, paths or strategies that we see so often in the climate realm. Um, so um, minimizing um, minimizing um, the harm, diffusing responsibility, um, uh, uh, you know, shifting of blame, uh, displacement, euphemistic labeling, all of these are basically mechanisms for people who um, who, who, who are trying to avoid feeling bad at the thought of, um, of having done something that hurt others. And, and, uh, and, and I think, it, to me, one thing that's important about seeing this connection to, um, uh, to uh, moral disengagement and the psychology of, of, uh, of moral disengagement in the climate realm is to recognize that you know, the reason that, that people may do these things is actually because they aren't sociopaths. They don't right want to care. cause harm, you know. Right. And and to some extent, the the more upsetting that people find um, the thought of causing harm, the less they want to believe right. uh, that in fact they have done something hurtful. Or yep. um, uh, and so um, so uh, to me, this this helps uh, in uh, in kind of illuminating the humanity, uh, even of people who are, uh, for example, uh, intransigent uh, uh, climate deniers. Um, uh, there's a there's a there's a, a kind of tragedy there and also perhaps a sense of like, you know, people can have a very good heart and mm-hmm. still uh, still be um, be engaging in these basically distortions, uh, contortions uh, to avoid seeing something that's terrible. Yeah. I mean, what I've the way I kind of think of this is almost as though you know, the fact that we're still talking about the science just means that as a society, we've conceded that if climate change is real, we really need to be doing something about it. Because, you know, because um, otherwise we would have just accepted the reality of climate change and moved on to questions about what we should do about it. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it also, um, that's that's a great point, Mike. Um, and I guess what I, what I would just add is that, um, you know, a trick there is that as we do specify more and more of the awfulness mm-hmm. that comes with most climate scenarios, um, we're in a sense entrenching right. some people more and more um, uh, because we're making it worse and worse for them to sort of recognize the, the causal mechanisms. Yep. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's not great. Um but um, sorry, I, I interrupted. We were kind of moving in the direction of the in-group, out-group uh, issue. I think. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so, uh, so basically, um, people tend to internalize the harms to their in-group uh, people they, they see as part of their community or relevant to them, um, and they tend to uh, to really not want to hurt those people. Uh, and uh, and at the same time, uh, social scientists have found that. Um, that people tend to be much more tolerant of um, harms to outgroup members. And in some cases, some kind of upsetting cases, they may even seek to harm uh, people um, who are uh, sort of, they perceive as outside of, of their uh, community. Um, and so, you know, one kind of application that, that, that I find interesting um, for this research 
is in thinking about the whether or not uh, environmental laws and policies should extend beyond the borders of the United States and how much we need to be thinking about um, foreign people, ecosystems, um, et cetera, in setting uh, domestic policies. And, you know, this is a, it's a very tricky question already with a whole bunch of different, you know, fascinating but hard um, uh, interactive factors to decide things like when we're calculating the social cost of carbon, should we be using a, a global or a domestic number? Um, but at least one way of thinking about how individuals see that question um, uh, is to uh, is to recognize that um, that to the extent that people see fellow Americans in the U.S. as in 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 group, um, uh, that's going to trigger a whole set of basically uh, forms of internalization and caring, and that won't necessarily get triggered when they're thinking about about foreign persons or people outside of that group. Yeah, so I think that you know. Uh, this is kind of part of the diffusion side of environmental law, but it's certainly the case in, in climate change that, um, you know, the reality is that greenhouse gases are a global pollutant. And so a ton of greenhouse gases emitted in California will have as much effect in California as a ton of greenhouse gases emitted in Germany will have in California. And so we're, we're stuck in this together, but there is this element of our psychology that seems to be very... Um, you know, kind of oriented towards our own groups and, and less oriented towards worrying about other groups. And and climate change, one of the, I'd, I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on this, is I think one of the tricky things politically about climate change is that it encourages people to take a kind of global mindset, a more, what, you know, people in their literature refer to as a more cosmopolitan worldview, to think about international institutions, to think about, kind of the global environment, a global public good, what our responsibilities are to people around the world. And that seems, you know, that mindset is very much an anthema to a kind of nationalistic, you know, let's focus on our group and not worry about the other groups kind of orientation. And, you know, we've seen a growth in nationalism in the last, you know, however many years that see, that strikes me as very difficult to deal with climate change if we're moving in a more nationalistic direction. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's definitely, I mean, first, um, if we are uh, indeed moving in a more nationalistic direction, which as you point out, there's, there's, there's indicators of, it does create real challenges to, um, further challenges to dealing with climate change. Um, and I guess the only thing I would add there is to say, you know, from a technical perspective, where the rubber meets the road on this in current climate policy is in the calculation of the social cost of carbon, which is um, and other greenhouse gases, which is the way that uh, federal agencies um, account for the likely harms that are caused by each unit of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And basically, um, agencies have to figure out whether or not they're going to calculate that based on how much harm there is to the entire world, um, or maybe just the US, or maybe something kind of in the middle. And there's been a, a kind of flip-flopping of, um, of executive uh, a policy on this in recent years. So under Obama, agencies used a global estimate. Uh, under Trump, um, they were encouraged to use a domestic estimate. And now under Biden, uh, they're back to, uh, back to a global estimate. Um, I think that, you know, what should they be using? Um, is it 
very difficult question. Um, I think that um, you know my very strong preference that they use a, a global estimate, although I think that in some cases that creates some legal challenges with statutes that were drafted to address um, national interests. Um, but what I guess I could add uh, from on the psychological side, on the in-group, out-group uh, uh, side of things, is to say, except in unusual circumstances, um, uh, people tend to attach some value to reducing harm to folks in outgroups, even if they don't attach as much value as they do to protecting uh, people that they think of as, as inside of their group. And so, you know, this matches up to what research has been done on whether Americans care about like the rest of the world existing or value anything about the rest of the world outside of US borders. And it, it's pretty clear that even if you take a very nationalistic approach um, uh, to valuing something like climate change impacts, it's not going to make sense to only come up with a, a valuation estimate that looks at, you know, only things that fall within the uh, the political borders of the United States. Even a very uh, nationalistic approach is going to have to take a broader um, a broader estimate um, uh, than that. And there would be um, there's further support for that um, when we look to these in-group, out-group studies. So even the most in-groupy people care at least a little bit about folks in the out-group. Except in unusual circumstances, and so I guess the the best counter argument uh, would be um, that um, there are some studies that find that when you have groups that are in direct competition, um, that um, that uh, that people actually prefer to harm outgroups. When you think about the interconnectedness of uh, in the environment and ecosystems and economies, etc., um, uh, the, the the plausibility of that in the climate change context it, it seems really remote to me. But um, you know, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like to think. Well, let's just say I like. I certainly like to believe that that's true. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, who knows? There may be folks out there that are um, that are more than happy to see others. Um, harmed by climate change if it does if it if it if it helps their relative status. Um, I don't think that's the kind of thing we should be basing public policy on, <laughs> uh, but it may be um, it may be some people's sentiment. Um, well, thanks so much for uh, this really wonderful and insightful book. You know, it's really um, broadened my way of thinking about environmental law, and um, I hope it was. I suspect it was fun to write, and um, you know, it was a fun conversation today. So, thanks for joining me. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, Mike. So it was great fun to write and, uh, and even more fun to, to chat with you.